Father, even as we think about the way that you have wrapped up your Lord's Prayer, that, that you taught us to pray, we think about what we just said, that it is your kingdom and your power and your glory last forever, and that is our great hope in this world as we see all the darkness in it, we see all the fallen nature affecting people in it, all the oppression going on, Lord, we trust that your kingdom is advancing, that your power will one day cover all, Lord, that your glory will be seen throughout all the earth. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit meet with us this morning and guide us as we look at your scriptures, that you might sanctify our hearts as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 72. Psalms is one of those books that's kind of right in the middle of your Bible, so if you just open up to the middle, you'll probably find it. We're in 72. I haven't said this in a long time, but if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we actually have some in the back. You're more than welcome to grab one and use that. In fact, if you don't have one, you're welcome to take it as well. This is Psalm 72. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Please have a seat. This is God's word. Almost forgot that, didn't I? You know, as we've, we've been looking in the Psalms, and I've mentioned that we were coming to the conclusion of book two, this is where, why it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, kind of concludes what uh, many have unofficially labeled book two of the Psalms. So we're reaching, we're reaching this climactic moment, that's exciting. And it's a, as you can tell, it's a, it's a, a prayer for a king. And what I wanted to do is consider why is this such a significant prayer? Why is it one that can help us in today's world? And as you think about kings, it is interesting to look back in history and find that 
For the most part, people are often, you might even make the argument always governed by kings, whether it's by that name or some other name. They function as though there's a king. And given that, I think we would be hard-pressed to think that somehow this wasn't in line with the will of the people. I think the people are always innately clamoring for some king to rule over them. I think there is this innate sense that we need a king to help us navigate life. The great American experiment in which we have a representative government is kind of an exception to that, but it has its parallels as well. I mean, presidents function in many ways like a king would function. They are the leader, this one primary leader over uh, the people. So it's hard to argue against kingship. But it's also hard to argue for kingship, as you probably know, because it's hard to find any example of a good king when you look back in history. More often, when we read about kings, we read about their corruption. We read about their pride. We read about how they have taken for themselves things that didn't belong to them, how they have abused their power, how they have considered themselves above or outside of the law. That seems to be a very common thread as you look back at the kings in history. I mean, there are some exceptions, you might argue, that there were some good kings here and there. I know Charlemagne is often lift, lifted up as, in the history books as one of the uh, good kings who sought to reunite the Roman Empire in uh, the Middle Ages. Uh, but even as he was, quote-unquote, a good king, he did some things that we would certainly question today as he sought to uh, bring Europe under the umbrella or the banner of Christ, he, some of his means to do that would not be ones that we would approve of of our missionaries doing today, which was to bring them, uh, to conquer them, and as they lay before him prostrate, he would, he would require them to be baptized or lop off their heads. So, not sure we exactly approve of his evangelistic techniques. I'm not sure they would approve of that evangelistic technique even in the Old Testament time, or the New Testament time for that matter. So even the kings that we would hold up in high esteem who have done some pretty amazing things historically, when you look at their lives, there are things about them that would highlight, yes, these kings are not all as good as they're cracked up to be. The best that we can come to is kings that we find in fantasy lore or in legends about the world. I was thinking about you know, the Lord of the Rings and Aragorn, this, this future king that's going to come, and he's kind of the exception, but he's also in a fantasy novel. <laughs> So you realize we have good kings, but they're a fantasy in some ways. King Arthur would be kind of the closest you know, historical legend that we, we hold up as this good king, although he had a bad downfall. But King Arthur was this supposed, the loose character that he was probably based on, you know, lived right around the time that Rome had fallen. Uh, they had pulled out of England, and what well, wasn't England at the time, Britain at the time. And here, a bunch of these tribal kings were trying to fend off the invaders from the, the Saxon invaders. And King Arthur was this tribal king in Britain, probably in Wales, that was somehow able to unite these always feuding kings together. And one of the symbols of his union of those kings was this round table, which showed their equal voice, their, their, their quality among each other. And he was successful for a time to hold off the Saxon invaders, but Obviously not for very long, as we think of them as the Anglo-Saxons and now England, or England, as that a country the Saxons did come over about maybe three centuries, two and a half centuries later. So, but King Arthur, again, he's, he's legend. 
we really don't know much about this king if he actually existed. He may have been a comp compilation of different kings who did different things. Uh, but we hope for kings that are like this. We long for a king like this. We just look at his history and we realize there just aren't any. And that's what history has taught us. There is no such thing as a good king. So we have these two things wrestling inside. Innately, we know that we need a king. And yet we also know kings don't ever work because they're all evil. I mean, it's interesting, even in the ancient days of the Old Testament, when you think, well, here's a country that is, has the blessing of God, and they have kings. So surely we're going to find good kings there. And no, again, we don't. We have some that are kind of called good kings. It'll talk about how they walked in the way of their father David, but then it'll always get this exception at the end, except they didn't remove the high places, or except they failed here, or except this or that. So even in the best of the, uh, the ancient kings in Israel, there is these, there is these parentheses about their kingship. And obviously they weren't successful as God was continually, continually bringing his judgment upon them, eventually wiping them out because these kings had failed the people so poorly that God was bringing about the curses of the covenant and bringing in these nations, first to carry off the northern kingdom of Israel and then to carry out the southern kingdom of Judah. So we have this perplexity that we want a king, and yet we know they're not going to do us well. And what's interesting is that as you go back and look at the history of the people in the Old Testament, they, they know this. In the time of the judges, which happened after Moses had brought the people out of their slavery in Egypt and had settled them into the land that God had promised to give their forefather Abraham, and they're there, and they're in the land, and they continually face trouble, so God raises up these judges to help rescue them from their troubles. And in the midst of that period of time, they cry out for a king under the, under the judge named Samuel. So we read book 1 Samuel that talks about this. You know, the people cried out. They said they wanted a king. Now Samuel is upset by this cry for a king because he knows how bad kings can be. And God says, well, go tell them what's going to happen if they have a king. And so this is what he says. And again, this is, this is God's people, God's nation. So Samuel says this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So here we have this conflict. We, we see the tension already. They know they need a king, and we're going to get to that. They do need a king. They know they need a king, and yet God is saying, if you take a king, this is what he's going to do to you. So why did they know they needed a king? Well, this is what they had to say about that. They said uh, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, 
But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So at the heart of this desire for a king, if you think about, well, why do we want one? It's the same thing I think is true. There is this longing for justice and longing for security. Longing for justice and longing for security, two things that we know we cannot live without in this world. And the king is the one to bring it. And in fact, I would even argue that only a king, only some ruler can offer that. Because without one, what do you have? You have anarchy. You have chaos. You have, as described in the days of the judges, everyone doing what he sees fit in his own eyes. And that always doesn't work well. What happens then? Well, it's the might who get what they want, and it's the weak who become oppressed. There's always people being oppressed at the will and the whims of those who have the power and the strength. And it's not a good thing. The door is open for oppression and abuse. There's no banner in which to unite, so that the, uh, no leader who can pull things together. So if an invader comes about, they're in trouble. They're going to be carried off as slaves. So while they might have been their power uh, center in their own little world, well, now someone bigger is coming out that is organized, who does have a king, who does have an army, and they're in trouble. So we have this conundrum. If a king is the only answer and history shows that no king is good, what can we do? What can we do? Well, that's why we have this prayer. See, all that's just a setup so we understand the context of this prayer and why it is so important. Because in it we see our only hope, which is for a kingdom ruled by a king that God himself has equipped and blessed. That's our hope. Our hope is for a kingdom ruled by a king that God has equipped and blessed. Now, what does that equipping and blessing look like? And we see those things being asked for by the petitioner, by the psalmist. So in the first thing, we see them asking for the, describing the nature of his reign, that it is a reign defined by righteousness. That's what we see in the opening prayer. As the psalmist asks the Lord to grant the king justice, this is what he says, verses 2 through 4, as he's explaining what this means. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So in these lines, he's describing justice. And it is interesting, he's pointing out that primarily the justice is for the poor. Now why is he saying that? It's not as though he's saying the justice is only for the poor. But he's specifically asking for justice to be for the poor because they're the people who always find themselves under the thumb of the oppressed, the, the, the powerful, the rich. They don't have anyone to advocate for them. So here the prayer is that the king would be there in strength to advocate for the poor and the needy who cannot advocate for themselves or who are always under the thumb of those who are stronger than them. So there's this idea of of equity. There's this idea of justice, and the justice is equal for all now. The, the, le, the, the playing field is being level, as it were. And as you think about this, it's also proactive in its nature. When we think about judge, you know, someone who's bringing justice, and we think about judges often, well, the judge 
we know, is someone who sits in the courtroom all the time, and he's only active when somebody comes before him with a case. But this would be more like not only that kind of justice, but also the, the executive branch that's going out trying to enforce the law. So there's this proactive aspect to the job of the king to go out not only to give justice to the poor who come before him in appeals, but to go out finding the poor, looking for the ways in which they might be oppressed, and bringing about an end to the oppression on their case. So there's this proactive role that exists for the king. Now, and the reason for this, the purpose of all this, why are we bringing justice? Is it just for justice' sake? Well, no. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Now, mountains and hills are often references to the, to the ones in power. It's the power centers. So even if you had a place where, the, king, where the, the palace existed in a nation, it would be talked about as being on a mountain or a hill, whether or not it was on a literal mountain or a hill. But you talk about it like that. So the idea is that the prosperity of the king is given for the purpose of allowing the people under him to flourish. So it's not just that he has, he has wealth and power so he himself can benefit. He has wealth and power so that all those in his kingdom can benefit. That's the goal of the justice. That's the goal of his prosperity. And verse 5 and 7 continue to help us see as it expounded even more. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So there's this idea that how long should this kind of righteous rain endure? It should, it should endure forever. That's the idea. It should perpetuate itself. It should continue to go on. It should never cease. Now, I know that's, again, that's a problem for a lot of kings because kings, earthly kings, that is, well, they do die. And even as you read the account of Israel in the Old Testament, you read about king after king after king who succeeded him and succeeded him. And you have one who might have been pretty good and the next one who is evil and wicked. The next one might be okay. The next one might be wicked. So there's not this perpetuity. There's not from you know, moon to moon to moon, or not as long as the sun endures. So that's, that's what we need. We need a place that's not going to end. You know, the difficulty in, a, in the American experiment is that if, if the president is kind of the equivalent of the king, when one king steps down, the other king steps in and replaces everything he's done, no matter who it is. They just go back and forth. So there's no enduring of, of this righteousness from one ruler to the next. So that's what this prayer is for. May righteousness endure throughout the time. And he describes it too, that's not just, for, again, it's the equity he's describing here, like showers that water the earth. Like showers that water the earth. You think about which pieces of grass does a shower fall on? Well, I do have brown sections in my backyard. But that's not because of the rain's fault, that's my sprinkler's fault. And I'm the sprinkler, so... So when the rain falls, it's falling on all of the grass. And that's the idea of a king's prosperity is meant to be spread out through all his people, not reserved for a royal class or a, a ruling class or this group or that group to, to have favoritism, to those who, who like him as, as opposed to those who don't like him. 
So there's this equity and there's this enduring nature that peace may abound. And all of this, obviously, is so that prosperity, the people, can flourish because it takes time for flourishing. It takes time for flourishing. And the idea of righteousness, too, and this is important to talk about, that the, the ruler we're, we're, the psalmist is praying for, being a righteous ruler, means he is, he is, he is right, if that makes sense. He's defined by his rightness. There is some standard against which the people and their activity is measured. There has to be. If you're going to institute some justice, you have to have a legal code against which you're identifying things as wrong or right, as legal or illegal. I know our country doesn't like to talk about right or wrong. We'd rather talk about legal and illegal, or what can I get away with? But in God's economy, the idea is that a ruler is leading by righteousness. So there has to be some standard for the people. Now, where does that standard come from? Well, the psalmist is appealing to righteousness as defined by God's own character. That's the standard. That's the standard. Now, that means there are people who are going to be oppressed by the law, if they think about it like that, because they are not living in accord with the standard. So there is a justice that means you can't live whatever way you want in a kingdom like this. There are limitations. There are restrictions. But again, they're not changing with one king to the next king. Well, now we have one set of legal codes or right def definition, and now with another king we have a different set. No, the righteous standards that have to exist are not personal to the king. They're, they're the character of God. So they endure from king to king to person to person. Otherwise, we have, as the judges define it in their time, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you're familiar with reading the book of Judges, if you want an interesting read, if you want to read the parts of the Bible that you don't want your children to read, <laughs> will you read Judges? Because a lot of bad things happen in Judges. And as you get towards the end of Judges, he's describing, well, what's it like when everyone does as, as he sees fit in his own eyes? And he takes time to describe this horrible case of rape and murder. Not just rape, but gang rape and murder. So it's a horrible, horrible event as described. And the murder, of course, is of this woman and the man whose wife she was takes the body and cuts her into pieces and sends it all over the country. I mean, we can't even imagine that happening today. Well, I suppose we can imagine it in some of the criminal mind shows that we watch, but in real life, you know, that's very, very hard to fathom. And yet, here, when you have no king and you have no righteous standard against which everyone's being called to account, this kind of thing happens freely. So, righteousness as defined by the character of God. Now, the extent of his reign, everywhere. Even the far ends of the earth. So, verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. So as we think about the flourishing of the people, it was never meant to be isolated to just one nation. It was meant to extend to the far reaches of the earth. And this wasn't a surprise in the time of the kings, this was, or in the time of the psalmist. It wasn't something new being introduced. It was always God's plan. 
to recover what was once lost, to redeem all of the earth. Now he chose to do that by calling one man, Abraham, from among all the peoples of the earth, and he says, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So this idea of while he's the king over one particular locality and people, his reign and his rule and his flourishing is meant to extend all the way to the far ends of the earth. Now the the great king in which we see this kind of exemplified in the Old Testament was Solomon which is talking about this is a prayer of Solomon. You know, Solomon was a king whose wealth and wisdom was so famous across all the world that kings and queens and others from places would come to see if it's really true. And there's that famous story in 1 Kings chapter 10 about the queen of Sheba coming to see. I've heard about your wisdom. I've heard about your wealth. And I didn't believe it. So I came to see, is it really true? And as he shows her all of his kingdom and all the things that he has, shows her the, the temple and the palace, she hears his wisdom about his knowledge of all the things she can possibly imagine, she goes home saying, what was told to me didn't do it justice. You know, there is this wi- wisdom and wealth that are flowing out from you. Blessed are all those who are under you. That's the idea of this kind of king that we desire. Now, Solomon was a type, but he wasn't the actual thing, because Solomon wasn't always that good. For when Solomon died and his son came to reign, the people came before his son and said, make the yoke easier, for your your father was hard on us. So while in one sentence you have this, how great King Solomon was and how blessed everybody was, the reality is behind the scenes, there's a lot of oppression going on. There's a lot of hardness going on. So even him, we have limited success, but not a fulfillment ultimately of what we're looking for. And again, the psalmist emphasizes the nature of this righteousness, which is compassionate. It's a compassionate righteousness, verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious, precious is their blood in his sight. And again, for this kind of king, the psalmist prays, for his provision, that he might have the means of caring for the people in such a way. That's why you read about, may, may, the, may they all offer him tribute. May the wealth come to him. Why? So that he is provided for to distribute his prosperity across all the people. That's the kind of king that we need in this world. So, what can we take away from this psalm? How do we apply this in today's world? Well, I think the, the most straightforward answer is pray for your leaders. Pray for the leaders, the earthly leaders that God has raised up. And pray for them in a prayer like this. We pray for our president or we pray for the kings and other nations. We pray that they would rule in righteousness as defined by the character of God. We pray for that. And we pray that as they are ruling in their righteousness, that God would supply all their needs to do so. That he would thwart the opposition that would stand against him. So we can certainly pray for these things in our world. Governments, after all, were put in place to bear the sword against those who do wrong. Those who oppress others. And again, it has to be according to the character of God and not the present popular ideologies of the day whether it's the right side of the aisle or the left side of the aisle, 
you know, they have their own definition. It is interesting today, I think, about the uh, language that has really kind of gripped a hold of our culture and the, the view of the oppressor. We want to set free those who are under the oppressor, as if this is a new idea. It's not a new idea. It's right here. It's all throughout the Bible. But the difference of what we hear today is that oppression is uniquely defined. We have to define it as the Bible is seeing it and understand it in that way. And the second aspect of applying a psalm like this is to realize that you can't put, while you pray for your leaders to reign like this, you can't put your hope in them because they are going to fail. And you shouldn't be surprised when they fail because that's what history shows us. It always amazes me today when, when, when people have the president they voted for and think he hasn't done anything wrong. It's like, well, that's, you got your head in the sand. That is not true historically ever. So I don't know why we're thinking that suddenly it's going to be true today. So pray for them, whether you agree with them or not, but don't put your hope in them. Instead, hope for a true king. Hope for a true king. And as you think about that conundrum between knowing that we ultimately know that the only thing that will fix this world is a real king, and yet historically we've never seen a good king, that's a, it's, this, it's this weird thing to say that we, we know something's true, but we haven't experienced it yet. You know, there's this idea that it's out there. It is out there. It's coming. I love the way C.S. Lewis would describe things like this. He says, how do you know there's something like water? Because you feel thirsty. If you feel thirsty, there has to be something that's meant to satisfy this thirst. When your elbow hurts, well, you know there's something wrong with it. Intuitively, you know it's not supposed to hurt. <laughs> So we know there is a king that fits the description of this psalm, ultimately. And that's, of course, what we're, talking, what we're reading about in the New Testament, the description, the description of Jesus Christ. And even in the time of Samuel, as we go back to that account for just a minute, because in the period of the judges, when everything was so bad, they did actually have a king. Uh, it's hinted at, Samuel explains that, because Samuel is very upset that they're asking for a king. In some ways, you could say, because he was raised up to be the judge, and he was kind of the ruler at the time. But God says, look, don't, don't be upset, for it's not that they're rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. So even in the time of the judges, God was the king. And, if, and you think, well, the ultimate king doesn't have to be God? And yet, when God was king of Israel, they didn't do well. Well, there's, there's more to the story. It's not that we don't want God to be the king. We do want God to be the king. But he has to be an incarnate king. And that was the difference. We want a, we want a king like the nations have around, them, around us. What kind, of nation, what kind of king did they have? It wasn't that they admired all the bad things that those kings around them were doing. But no, this was a king they could go to. They could see. He was in the flesh. They could make an appeal. They could know him personally. And that's the difference between who, what, what the answer that Jesus is providing. He is God to come as king, but he's come in the flesh that we might know him. And how did Jesus operate when he came? In his earthly ministry, it wasn't filled with his exaltation. It was only filled with his humiliation. It talks about 
he, he's living out how it says their blood is precious in his sight. He's showing how far he would go in order to secure prosperity for his people. He would go all the way into the gates of hell. He would go all the way to face the wrath of God to rescue his people from the ultimate enemy that would come their way, death itself. So he battles death. He heals the sick. He makes well the lame. He casts out the ultimate oppressor, the demons who had, who had possessed people when he was in their midst. So he's demonstrating the compassionate nature of his rule in his earthly ministry, which led ultimately to his humiliation. But when he was raised from the dead, that raising from the dead showed him to be God's man, having now power. And as it says, after he left his people and ascended to heaven, he went up to sit at the right hand of God. The idea is that Jesus Christ indeed is that king who came in the flesh, God, and is reigning now, and is little by little accomplishing that extension of the kingdom to all the earth answering the prayer of this psalmist. And that's the amazing thing. This psalmist prays this prayer and he encourages the people to pray this prayer and we're still praying this prayer and we're still looking for its ultimate fulfillment. It's happening. It's unraveling. But it's not yet fulfilled. Until all the earth is filled with the kingdom of God and then we see the ultimate enemy of sin itself, the, corruption, the corrupt nature of people will be removed as far as the east is from the west. So when his kingdom is made secure, there will be a place of prosperity and flourishing for the people. For the wealth of Jesus Christ is meant for the people. The people. So while we pray for our leaders today, our hope ultimately is the king that will come. And so we don't lose heart as we see difficult things happening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can pray for our leaders, that we have a model of how to pray for them, that they might rule with justice and righteousness. We're also thankful, Lord, that when they fail, our hope is not gone, or it's not dashed, because our ultimate hope is in the incarnate King that you sent, Jesus Christ, to rule over us, where he has not only conquered death, but he is cleansing us from the, own, the, the, the sinful nature of our own corruption so that one day we will be in your kingdom and we will indeed flourish. Lord, help us to long for that day and to be patient in the interim and to pray that it might come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.